So if you want to really think of a drug cartel and try to find comparison to other institutions, think less Mario Puzo's The Godfather and think more a venture capitalist firm or think of Shark Tank and maybe a logistic company merged together. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in into the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. This episode is really special because I've been wanting to do this episode for so long and now the time has come. So in this episode, we'll talk about the criminal entrepreneur and innovation skills of the Mexican drug cartels, how they operate and what we can learn from them. And we'll look at how Drug cartels are more like Silicon Valley startups, why they're so good at innovation and what today's companies can learn from these illegal drug cartels, how drug cartels were previously using planes, tunnels, catapults, and even drones and are now resorting to more unorthodox methods such as manned narco submarines and other techniques to evade authorities. Then we'll also learn how cocaine is produced from its raw material all the way to its end consumers and what makes it so profitable. At the end, I'll also explain how to set up your own drug empire, what skills and mentality you need to succeed in this industry, how to scale your business, and what offshoring options you can use. So if you ever wanted to make cocaine and run your own personal drug cartel, stick around. But before we continue, just to make this very clear to any listeners, the police, the FBI, the FDA, and all those other three-letter agencies around the world, neither I or my guests are condoning taking illegal drugs, not even recreational ones, or joining a drug cartel and recommend that the listeners of this podcast research its legal status and the penalties attached to its possession, use, or supply in your respective country. My guest today is Rodrigo Nieto Gomez. Rodrigo is a geostrategist and defense futurist focused on the consequences of the accelerating pace of innovation and security, as well as safety and defense policy. So what does all that mumbo-jumbo in plain English mean? Well, he basically studies how the government can adapt in more effective ways to counter the deviant innovation capacities of criminal organizations and how to manage projects to create, say, IT tools to better prepare decision-maker when confronted by these adversarial innovations. So without further ado, let's go meet Rodrigo. Rodrigo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for inviting me. So in order to make this episode happen, I initially contacted the U.S. Coast Guard, but I'm really happy that I found you, Rodrigo, as you seem much more qualified as a guest than the U.S. Coast Guard. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, in fact, I have worked closely with uh, members of the Coast Guard. I am a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School, so a lot of our interactions happen with them 
So a lot of the things that we'll be discussing, I can tell you it's things that are well into the radar of the United States Coast Guard. So it'll be fun to talk about. Before we start, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. I'm Rodrigo Nieto Gomez. I'm a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School uh, in Monterey, California. It is a military institution. It's a military university that teaches masters and some PhDs, mostly for military personnel, though we also do it for civilian members of what we would call the Homeland Security Enterprise. So people who have direct relationship with domestic security of the United States. My background is uh, I'm a lawyer originally, and then I went into a master's and PhD in geopolitics at the French Institute of Geopolitics in Paris. And one of my main focus, um, m- m- main areas of interest is the way in which drug trafficking organization cartels, uh, mafias innovate to stay ahead of the game, right? So criminal innovation is, is what I normally Very interesting. So I think I and I think most of my listeners are wondering, how did you even get started in this area? Were you previously employed by, say, a drug cartel and have now gone rogue and joined the dark side of the government? (laughs) Sure. No, not at all. It's it's been an an interesting path. I started, as as I mentioned, as a lawyer and and very early my, my focus shifted from dealing with what would be at the time NAFTA companies, so companies who would do international trade in the NAFTA zone. And at that time, this thing that we today call Homeland Security in America was becoming more and more important. And that started to interest me more. And because I am of Mexican origin, clearly uh, drug cartels became part of what I was looking at and, and part of my interest, border security. As I started doing it more, I discovered the literature on innovation theory. I ended up actually teaching a class on strategy, which is half business strategy and half military strategy, let's say. And uh, innovation theory became more and more important to the point that that became the center or the core of what I But because of where I work and what I do, I immediately discovered the value of applying the lens of literature and innovation but to those who don't operate within the uh, limits of regulatory environments and the cartels in the U.S.-Mexico border became a fantastic case study to see what happens when innovation goes rogue. So before we get into the nitty-gritty details, uh, I'm sure we've all seen the one or the other movie about organized crime portraying drug lords or mafia bosses. So my question would be this. How similar or far-fetched are movies such as The Godfather or even Sicario from reality? So what do they get right and what are some things that these movies get wrong? Yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned two very different movies, Sicario or or The Godfather or more recently the Netflix series uh, Narcos, right? And in many ways, each of them actually portray a different kind of organizational structure for drug cartels. I would say that out of all of those, probably the one that has had the most longevity in the imagination of people is certainly The Godfather, the Mario Puzo works. But in many ways, they are the worst ones to try to understand, to try to understand what drug cartels do. They, 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 they showcase this centrally planned institution with the drug lord at the center. If you remember the logo of the movies was actually this kind of puppeteer's hand establishing or, or hinting that the drug lord controls every string 
and nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, movies like Sicario put the accent more on the muscle or armed part of the operation, which is probably a better understood part of the dynamic where the, the cartel will create this private army that they use to enforce their uh, objectives. And then movies like Narcos are actually very interesting because what uh, the series like Narcos, because what they do is they basically have the innovator's journey, right? So they showcased every drug dealer from the beginning to the way, to the time in which he or she captured or killed. And that arc of the innovation process is probably closer to what we know, as we will see, uh, and we can deconstruct that one as we as we talk about. Okay, so you mentioned a very interesting aspect, one that drug cartels aren't centrally planned or organized. How are drug cartels, from what we know at least, organized? I mean, what does like a typical org chart uh, look like, if we can kind of generalize it? So it's it's really interesting because I, 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 you're asking a professor, so I, I, I'm not good at giving short answers. But in general, you will encounter what it's a paramilitary institution at the center of the operation. And that is true and that exists. So you can imagine El Chapo Guzman, right? One of the most famous ones recently captured. He sits at the apex of a criminal organization. That criminal organization has multiple subdivisions. Uh, one of them, for example, is that one of security, right? And therefore, they will have muscle. That muscle manifests itself by creating capacity in the shape of military training or paramilitary training, trucks, vehicles, weapons, etc. All the paraphernalia of violence. But that centralized organization is actually not the core innovation engine of a drug cartel. Drug cartels in many ways, if you want to really understand how they operate, you probably could go and not look at the Godfather movies and instead think of Shark Tank or any venture capitalist enterprise. Cartels create a uncanny amount of capital. They they centralize it and then they use that as seed money for other entrepreneurs that are only loosely related to the cartel to start smuggling and narcotraffic operations. So if you want to really think of a drug cartel and try to find comparison to other institutions you might, might, might recognize, think less Mario Puzo's The Godfather and think more a venture capitalist firm and maybe a logistic company built or merged together. That's really fascinating. So if you're saying they're more like VCs, venture capitalists, can I then conclude that they are prepared to fail or do they know in advance that from 100 investments that they make, the majority will fail? They do. And if you think of a cartel operation, in, it's interesting because in many ways, most choices that they take are de-risking choices. So in that regard, they're not unlike a venture capitalist that will factor a percentage of loss, a high percentage of loss, but at the same time will make sure that any loss is not critical for the survivability of the fund or the operation. So uh, cartel members know that when you're experimenting in a certain way, you're, you, you will start small and then you'll grow with time. At the same time, they diversify their portfolio. They have many actors uh, dealing with sometimes the same exact link in the supply chain, and they would have four or five ways of smuggling, and we can go more into that. But 
This is why the same cartel might be building tunnels and using drones and corrupting people at the border and sending semi-submersibles through the ocean. All of these are basically hedging the risk and looking at what is working. And because in a criminal world, you don't have intellectual property, the moment the cartel identifies a new successful way of dealing drugs, all of the other cartels will immediately imitate. That kind of really strongly deviates from what the general public thinks cartels are. So they use a lot of violence, they're bullies. But in reality, from what I'm hearing, it's very, very professional. They use business tactics, for lack of a better word. So I found that really uh, interesting that they are, they're much more professional as one would think. So we have to be very careful to uh, underestimate our adversary. This is a mistake we've done in the past. I also don't want to glorify them, right? They are not Steve Jobs either. But although I have called before El Chapo Guzman the Steve Jobs of the drug dealing world, but no, I, I think you're right. So the cartels are, the, the specifically the Mexican cartels, a little bit the Colombians, they are the result of the most predatory business environment in the history of mankind with a governmental force that is out there to either kill them or capture them. And after 40 years of sustained pressure by governments, this is what optimization looks like. Cartels are highly optimized smuggling and black market engines of commerce. And by now we have created through iteration, multiple years of pressure, fairly optimized organizations for doing that. So yeah, no, no, no. Cartels are very sophisticated at this point. The level of specialization that we encounter in some of the areas that doesn't mean that there are not thugs and that there are no incompetence and there are no uh, violent elements. But even if you think of the violence, so think of the wave of violence that we've witnessed in Mexico in these last few years, that wave of violence is hardly a random act of violence, the way we would see it with gangs like MS-13 in Central America. Instead, all of these acts of violence are highly choreographed acts of basically narco-terrorism. And the main target of that kind of action is other drug cartels. So it's a marketing campaign to try to limit the actions of competitors. So even their acts of violence are highly choreographed and they search and look for a specific business object. We've mentioned that they're really good at smuggling and mentioned a, a few other terms. So can you briefly also explain what the value and supply chain of cocaine from its production to its end customers look like? Because I think that's really important for the listener to understand, since most of my listeners hopefully do not come from this industry. <laughs> I would hope so, too. Yeah. So, so cocaine is an interesting product. It's an interesting product because it's a... Uh... It's a difficult plant to grow. It has specific conditions for it, although to the point of them being smart, there's a lot of biotech engineering now behind some of the coca leaf and drug cartels have been trying to change the, the plant so it would grow in different ecosystems. But right now, you would say that most of the cocaine comes from the Andean region, right? So Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, so that, that part of the territory. And at, at that point, the coca leaf would be harvest. And then if you are going to, and, and there are legitimate ways to cultivate uh, coca leaves, but if you're going to be entering the, into the drug business, what you do is at that point, you refine it and you create pure cocaine. That pure cocaine will then get packaged and shipped through multiple steps 
all the way, ideally, to the United States or Europe, where it is more valuable. So you have this product that it's created in, in South America. It has to travel through Central America, in this case, to get to the uh, Mexican territory. And then Mexican cartels would smuggle it to the United States, where the most expensive geography to sell cocaine is the cities in the Northeast. So New, think New York City, Washington, D.C., etc. The interesting thing is that every time that that piece, that that brick, that's how they call them because of how it's packaged, that brick moves from one territory to the other, it costs more, right? It costs increases. And that's different from other products because it is true that your iPhone probably travels to seven or eight countries before getting into the Apple store where you bought it. But every time that it travels, there is a there is a transformation that happens, right? Manufacture takes place, packaging, etc. In the case of cocaine, as it moves through the supply chain, it increases in value just because of the geographic placement of the product. So it's worth $2,000 per kilo. I'm giving you a, a random number, but that's more or less where it used to hover in Colombia. By the time that it's in Mexico, it might be $4,000 or $5,000. By the time that you move to the United States, to New York City, you're in the $30,000, dollars per pure cocaine. And then it'll be cut, it'll be reduced, it will be diluted and sold. So when you buy for $20,000 a kilo of pure cocaine in New York City, basically what is happening is that you're buying $2,000 of raw material and $18,000 of risk premium. Right, So the reason why cocaine increases in price as it moves around is because you are attaching the cost of the risk associated to that movement to the value. And that includes all the methodologies to get there, right? It might be corruption, it might be, uh, it might be smuggling, it might be social engineering, right? But in any of these cases, you are having to find a way to defeat a fairly aggressive and violent institutional apparatus that governments build to try to stop you from performing your duty. So that is the supply chain. It's a constant effort of ingenuity and entrepreneurship to understand how governments try to stop you from moving that chemical product from territory A to territory B and how to do it in a profitable way without getting captured or killed. That is the business proposition of any drug cartel. Very interesting. I just became aware of an aspect where I would have the following question. Since coca plants are restricted geographically to a certain area where you can grow them, is that also the reason why El Chapo switched to meth or methamphetamines? Because A, he didn't have to rely on his suppliers in South America and then having to ship it to Mexico where he could then have to process these coca leaves. But now with methamphetamine, he could produce everything himself. Is that the case or the reason why he switched to methamphetamine besides it being more profitable? No, that's completely right. So methamphetamines, heroin, right? So all of these are products that diversify the source area. So this, this is a part of the geopolitical element of the, of the balance of power among cartels. So historically, Colombian cartels, because cocaine became the most profitable product that you could sell, had a, an advantage because they controlled the supply. Uh, and then Mexicans, their, their, their advantage that they had in this case is that they had access, the, the sole access to the most valuable cocaine market on the planet. So they had this, or, and they still do this uncomfortable relationship. They're frenemies in that regard. But if you think about it from a, from a business perspective, uh, this gives a lot of power to your suppliers. 
So drug cartels are frequently looking for diversifying their product lines for things that they control. And the beautiful thing, beautiful, but I mean beautiful for them of methamphetamines is that methamphetamines are a industrial product, right? So you, you, you at that point are a manufacturing company, whereas cocaine is more of an agricultural product and you depend on soil and terrain. So uh, you're completely right. Certain drugs provide certain advantages to drug cartels. Those advantages be, being that uh, they they can break the uh, historical the historical dependency they had on Colombia. Now the problem of that is that they, it, it also opens the door to other operations. So Chinese mafias, for example, are now entering the U.S. market. They are doing it by bypassing Mexico completely and sending uh, shipments concealed in containers from products coming from China, for example. And again, because this is a, a industrial product, they don't need the historical relationships that they used to have with Mexican cartels. So there is a new entrant and more and more of the drug smuggling that happens to, towards the United States is not happening anymore north-south or south-north. It's happening east west and west east so they essentially vertically integrated if you will into other drugs so they're able to control their whole production so they'll, they'll try it's interesting because it is, there, there is an element of vertical integration but then there is a lot of insourcing or even uh, subcontracting right so the the way it used to be and still is to a certain degree is that if you are a kid in tijuana mexico and you're ambitious and you want to do something with your life because you're tired of the opportunities that are offered in a slow-growing economy like historically has been Mexico. You're actually not the poorest among the poor. This is a misconception. Most drug cartels don't come from the poorest people in Mexico. They actually will come from this fragile middle class, some education, high school, maybe a few years of college, some ambition. And you know a friend who knows a friend who knows a friend who connects you. And one day outside of your apartment, a duffel bag, it used to be a marijuana because it was the cheapest uh, drug that you could create, uh, that you could move. It's now moving to other products because uh, the, the legitimate market in California has changed that. But you, you would have a duffel bag full of marijuana and uh, a note that would say, I'll see you in five days in this address in San Diego and you better be there or, 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 or dead or in prison. So you are a creative individual. Maybe you buy a, a pickup truck or a SUV and you're a good welder or you know somebody. So you make some modifications and you hide that drug somewhere and then you drive and you're nervous, but you get your act together and you successfully cross the border. You deliver the drugs, get, get a decent amount of money, and then you repeat the process three or more times. You have an MVP at that point, a minimum viable product. Uh, you do it five, six, seven times. Eighth time, you actually can hire somebody to do it for you so you don't drive anymore. Uh, so you have a now, now move the risk to somebody else. You're so successful that you do it seven, eight, nine times a day, uh, maybe. You have multiple pickups now going back and forth. You moved from marijuana to actually cocaine or methamphetamines or something more successful. A year later, two years, three years later, somebody makes a stupid mistake. He gets captured and the, the whole operation crumbles. You go you go to prison. The DEA or the Mexican Armed Forces will say, hey, look, we really gave a, a blow to the Tijuana cartel. Was that really the case? Probably not. 
you were a startup. You were a subcontractor. Now, now you cannot move drugs, and I guess that's a good thing. But in general, what happened here was a subcontractor, uh, an investment by a drug cartel, failed, right? Uh, there were many others that were successful. So that's kind of where we have the operation. In the one hand, yes, they control the whole uh, chain and distribution. But on the other hand, they do it in a very decentralized way by allowing entrepreneurs to assume the risk that the drug cartels actually don't assume for themselves. So basically, they're going into other industries and essentially diversifying. And so my question here would be, uh, at least from my research, I've noticed that drug cartels have shifted their efforts from smuggling drugs to trafficking people, for example, as more and more states, especially in the U.S., have legalized marijuana, for instance, trafficking people has now become much more lucrative. And according to a Newsweek article, human trafficking is a $150 billion a year industry in Mexico, which is the third largest illegal enterprise in that country, followed by smuggling drugs and guns. Have you seen these trends as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you think, so drug cartels are not drug cartels. It's actually a bad name and I use it because it's the one that everybody uses. But yes, these are basically criminal organizations and their job is to provide the supply to black markets. If tomorrow you would ban apples, they would start selling apples in the black market. So they have a series of core activities that they perform, right? So for example, drug cartels are really good at creating muscle. What I mean by that is they build these private armies where they can enforce the rules. And we've seen recently an emergence of much more well-prepared drug cartel battalions at this point. We're not talking anymore about little mafias like the ones you find in Europe. We're talking about 15, 20 armored vehicles with grenade launchers. I mean, at this point, they're almost like, like an insurgency but they don't want to take control of the government. They just want to protect their business operations. So when you have that one, you have a way of concealing people, right? Because that's what you do. You have security houses, so you have the assets. You have the know-how of how to smuggle things or people, right? The difference is when you have people, you have to keep them alive, right? So you are concerned with the well-being. So now you have to deal with things like breathing and food and stuff like that. So yeah, they have branched into in, uh, human smuggling, they some of them branch into kidnapping in Mexico of wealthy individuals. Mexico is a very inequality. In Mexico is very high, so you have a lot of rich people, and therefore uh, kidnapping was for a while a thing that they 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 did. They they don't love it because it creates a lot of pressure by people trying to capture them because. When you hit that hard, the political elite or the business elite of a country, consequences happen. And therefore, in general, that's a business line that some of the most, the smartest cartel leaders try to avoid. But cartels will explore where it, where there is a regulatory failure because of an interdiction and a market desire. And wherever those two intersect, market desire and regulation, you'll have a cartel operation, a drug trafficking organization, right? A, a criminal enterprise created. And, and human smuggling uh, has been one of those places where recently, in, in the last 10 years or so, 15 years, they have branched out and, and now run most of the illegal crossings from the U.S., from the Mexico to the, to the U.S. in the U.S.-Mexico border happen with some kind of support of a professional and that professional has at least a loose relationship with cartels, if not a clear, direct one. 
I think that's an important point to make, and it also explains why drugs are so highly profitable, because essentially the government created the problem by making a substance, these drugs, illegal, and thus making these substances, like cocaine, for instance, highly profitable, and this in turn attracts talent, or let's call them criminal entrepreneurs, that then try to out-innovate their adversary, which is mainly the government, and its competitor. Yep. And one last thing I would like to also mention is uh, this reminds me of a documentary where where they interviewed dope dealers and they asked them one question which I found fascinating is do you want the government to legalize drugs so to regulate your business so you can sell your marijuana legally and they were like hell no that would destroy our profits in our whole industry. Yep. What's your view on that? Yeah, no, I I so so you're completely right in the sense that the government interdiction it's a key partner in the business model of drug trafficking organization. Uh, their business wouldn't exist without it and it would certainly don't have the, the the profit margins that it has without it. I mentioned that when you buy drug for that high amount of money, uh, what you're buying is basically the know-how to avoid the interdiction. Uh, we've seen this one, for example, with the so-called wall in between Mexico and the United States. This The building of what we call tactical infrastructure in the border is not new. It started during the Nixon years, but it really accelerated during the Clinton years and the Bush years, and then again or now during the Trump administration. The wall, it's an interesting thing because... I don't want to say that walls don't work, right? That's a, that's that's nonsense, right? So, but the way we are building it right now, uh, walls work if you build a high wall and you staff it with a lot of people and you create lethal force and you put anti-personal mines and maybe some crocodiles and I don't know what else. But then at that point, you might start cutting the flow. But what we've done right now, it's a middle of the way thing, right? So the US-Mexico border has now a bunch of presence. So the border patrol is the biggest federal law enforcement agency in the country. We build tactical infrastructure. These are fences, cameras, sensors, etc. But what that wall does is that it makes it hard enough so you and I, any beginner, wouldn't be able to smuggle drugs. So it requires specialized knowledge, but not that hard that it cannot be done. And therefore, it creates both the market, but also the need for a specialist, the need for know-how. And startups are built around a need that needs to be fulfilled. So if you know how to fulfill it, you will be successful. And this is why you're completely right. Not only they oppose the legalization of marijuana, they oppose the legalization of marijuana for medical reasons, for recreational reasons. And now when other states are trying to pass uh, this regulation, you saw now the medical dispensaries in America lobbying against recreational marijuana, right? So you you see that, that chain in which whenever I have a kind of monopoly in access to a market, the last thing I want is a deregulatory effort that would break that monopoly. And that's what right now drug cartels have for everything but marijuana. So my my, my this is a long winding answer, but what I want to say is regarding legalization, I would say that um, one has to be very careful because most of the drugs that we have right now on the market are drugs that were built and optimized not to be healthy or even fun. They are drugs that are easy to produce, easy to cut, easy to smuggle, right? Fentanyl being a good a good example right now. Fentanyl is a borderline rat poison, but drug cartels like it because it's such a powerful drug that even a small amount packs a real kick, so it's really easy to smuggle. Um, I would like to see 
innovation unleashed in recreational pharmacology? That would be my answer. So what would happen if big pharmacological companies, Bayer, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, now Moderna, would be unleashed and allowed to produce recreational pharmacology, so recreational drugs, and they would have to go to the same kind of FDA approval process in the United States and the equivalent in the European Union. And they had to demonstrate, for example, a threshold of safety that would have to be higher than, let's say, alcohol and tobacco, which are drugs that we already allow because they've been grandfathered into our system. What would a legitimate research and development effort to develop recreational drugs look like? The dystopian element of this will say that we would end up being creating Soma from, from the Brave New World, a drug that would make people less engaged in their community. But the flip of the coin would be that we might actually be creating better alternatives. And I think that that's a good compromise with the idea of creating a market that it's legitimate, but at the same time, not legalizing the kind of rat poison that right now it's on the streets of America and Europe. I think the I think the discussion needs to go on at least a public discussion about uh, all kinds of drugs like if we take alcohol for instance that's actually scientifically proven that it's a cell poison yep and uh, there's I'm pretty sure it wouldn't take too much to make alcohol where it gives you the buzz but you're not really drunk and you can able to to drive a car so you have the same fun but it's safe at the same time and I'm seeing this trend. There's more and more alcohol-free gin alternatives and things like that. So there is some innovation happening there. Yep. And the other aspect uh, is, which I try to have a little fun sometimes uh, before I start a talk, which is I ask the people, why not legalize all drugs? Why stop at marijuana? Um, just like, oh, well, but, it, but it's a gateway drug. And I'm like, okay, who here, if, if everything was legalized, heroin, crack, cocaine, everything would be legalized, who here would take, uh, would take that? And no hands go up. Like, okay, then why are we legalizing it? Isn't it your body? Um, no, no, it's always for the other people. I'm protecting the other people. And I ask, okay, why is alcohol uh, legalized? And I'm like, well, probably because politicians drink alcohol. <laughs> but I think the overarching discussion needs to continue is which one are we going to legalize and why are we stopping at marijuana? Yep, uh, you're completely right. So alcohol is legal because we grandfathered it in their system. I mean, the Phoenicians already would ferment fruits in order to produce alcohol. So it's it's one of the oldest drugs that we've been allowing and it became a cultural drug. But you're completely right. If I show you on paper, let's say LSD, which is a relatively safe drug, actually, and alcohol, and I told you without telling you which which is which, which one would you legalize? You would have to be insane to say alcohol instead of LSD, right? So LSD is a safer drug if we wanted to allow, allow one of the two. Now, research, for example, on psychotropics and hallucinogenics kind of stopped in the 1970s because of a puritanistic attack that we got, whatever. Uh, so this is a good example in which what would happen if you would allow, as you were saying, I'm not saying right, like you that we should legalize all current drugs, but I would say let's allow for companies to explore how can they produce safer drugs than the one we are already consuming. And and as you said, a research exists already. It's in place for alcohol alternatives that can be liquefied so you can make cocktails with them. They give you, as you mentioned, the same buzz. And then before you go, uh, you leave the party, you take another pill. 15 minutes later, the drug leaves your system. You're perfectly safe to drive. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives would be saved if we allowed for uh, recreation 
recreational research uh, the drug environment, but we haven't. And the dichotomy of discussing it as either legalize or ban them leaves innovation out of the conversation. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah, and I don't think we have to look far. We can just take a, a few examples. So in Sweden in the 1960s, I believe, they legalized pornography and then crime went down or the alcohol prohibition in the U.S. where crime rates went up and that's how Al Capone came to power yep. is having the alcohol prohibition in place. And once they legalized it again, crime went down. And a funny or ironic thing is they didn't get them based on alcohol, but tax evasion. So whenever you criminalize a substance or whatever, uh, crime tends to go up. That's just what history has uh, shown us. You're, you're right. So, so interdictions will not ban a behavior. The behavior will continue. It will make it illegal, but criminals will adapt. We are in a world in which today we accept research and development for recreational purposes in almost any field, from computation to engineering. We do fun stuff with any piece of technology. But in pharmacology, a very strict stance against anything but drugs that cure diseases has made it very difficult to create safer alternatives to the one already on the market. Yeah, maybe a last comment on that uh, in, in regards to hemp. So we used to use hemp for a lot of things. So not only for clothing, but also paper. And if you compare it to cotton, which is a really, really poor material, many people don't realize that, but cotton takes up smell very easily. Uh, it is absorbent. That's about the only advantage it has. Hemp is much more durable. Uh, it's, much, it's, it's more breathable. So there's so many aspects to hemp that are far superior than cotton because cotton uses a lot of water. And when you look at uh, where cotton uh, is basically planted, mostly in, in countries that don't have a lot of water. And the other aspect is we've lost a lot of innovation potential because the machines that could produce hemp fabric are 100 years old. And the machines that we have today, highly advanced for cotton, but they won't work for hemp. So we've lost a lot of innovation potential because an industry, I believe it was DuPont or somebody that basically wanted hemp outlawed. Yep. So the marijuana prohibition, uh, the fun thing is that some of the core lobby that got it banned in the United States it was actually part of the uh, pulp uh, or cellulose industry. And they spend uh, what would be current dollars, millions of dollars, trying getting, getting it banned. Uh, they did things like, for example, changing the spelling of the word marijuana. Uh, so it would spell with a J in English, marijuana, to make it sound like Tijuana in Mexico. So, so there's also a racial component in the way that it took place. And until today, there is no scientific evidence that would place uh, that drug in Schedule 1, which is the worst kind. Just to give you an example, cocaine is actually Schedule 2, right? So the American regulations say that marijuana is the worst kind of drugs. That there, and, 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 and the reality is that that's not the case. So politics, I mean, and I am a political scientist, so politics are part of this. Uh, and what we probably need to move towards is a more evidence-based policy in which risk and reward get placed in the same balance, the same way we do it for red meat, tobacco, alcohol, or uh, seatbelts and vehicles, right? When we when we identify that cars are dangerous, we don't go and ban the cars. We just go and look for technologies that make cars more safe. We're seeing it right now in the in the curse of this pandemic, we are going through 13, I think, medical trials right now around the globe to identify a safe uh, vaccine. And we are doing it in ways that we 
we've never done before to accelerate the research process. And we will come up with something that will balance risk and rewards. Now, that can be done for other things, not only for vaccinations. And in this case, can you imagine the amount of capital that would be available to perform uh, recreational drugs research? And as a byproduct of that, our knowledge on pharmacology in general would advance too, right? So we are missing an opportunity to advance in general biotech engineering by sustaining this interdiction that is based not on evidence, but on a more, a more puritanistic approach to what is pure or not and how humans should relate to products like pharmacology. Absolutely agree. So if we go back to our initial question, uh, which was, you know, cartels have been using, you know, planes, tunnels, catapults, drones, I believe, and you mentioned man semi-submersible and even breast implants and much more to basically smuggle drugs across the border. So my question would be, why are drug cartels so innovative? You mentioned some of the, uh, the reasons, but maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, so part of it has to do with the fact that they have made a commitment and that commitment is that they will operate in a space that has very little regulatory friction because they are already criminals. They don't care about the law by definition. So all of the limits, the, the speed bumps that exist in the legitimate world, if you're opening a startup and that startup is going to be doing X, Y, and C, part of your challenge is going to be to deal with the lawyers and identify what regulations need to be followed, uh, getting a chief compliant officer, compliance officer, etc. Well, none of those are present in the drug business. The other part is that their institutional incentives are perfectly aligned with the product and the objectives of the operation, right? If you if you don't succeed, you literally will be killed or imprisoned. And therefore, staying ahead of the game re remains really important. And for them, it's not a question if their supply chains will be obsolete. It's a question of when, because they know that they have a highly professional adversary, police officers and military forces, fighting against them. So when you know that whatever you are producing will be outdated by an adversarial force, uh, you are less subject to the innovator's dilemma, right? You are, you are actually always looking how to outdate and render your own systems obsolete. So the moment that a drug cartel is digging a tunnel, it is already thinking about what will happen when the tunnel gets found and what alternatives they have available. And this is why they hedge their funds. So in many ways, they have successfully adapted what we want more companies to do, which is to understand that short-term profits cannot come at the cost of long-term resiliency of the organization. Cartels are willing to forego millions of dollars today in order to keep the organization resilient to the future. Well, I mean, th this is such an important point, and I see this in companies. They have a successful product, and what they actually should be doing when the product is actually growing really fast is then they need to start developing a new product and not waiting for the cash cow for the S-curve to flatten. And that's so hard for most companies 
because they see, hey, we're having a lot of success. Why do you want to put uh, valuable resources into a product that's super risky, a new product, and we have this super product that's going well? I mean, why should we do that? And that's so hard for, for companies to really do exactly what the cartels are doing. So what are some concrete things that we can learn from the cartels when it comes to innovation, but also being very agile and adapt your business model to these rapidly changing environments? Do you have some real life examples where innovations from a drug cartel were applied to, like, say, other industries or companies? Sure. Um, and, and I think you, you explained it perfectly. I, I, I would give the example of the automobile industry right now in Germany and how little and how, how late they started moving when the electric car, when the electric car uh, movement started to take over. And, and I, look, I don't know at the end if Tesla would, will, will achieve the level of growth that we think it will at one point, but certainly the fact that both BMW, Mercedes, Audi, it, it took them so long to enter the game when they are the incumbents. It is not new. It is not surprising. It is the innovator's dilemma. But nevertheless, it is a common thing. So I I, I mean, I do have examples of direct uh, direct behaviors from drug cartels applied to legitimate business environments. I don't want to say that that's where they got inspired, uh, but we do get to see the same kind of logic. And one of my favorite examples actually is a weird one. It comes from the way some of our current platforms operate. So if you think about the App Store, or Google Play Store, what they do is that they build more or less the same model of centralized platform or decentralized innovation and risk around their developers. So if you want to put an app on the App Store for, for Apple, Apple will take 30% of whatever you do. So if you succeed, good for you, but they take a cut. If you fail, the failure is on you and you are the one who made all the investment and all the effort and all the research and you are the one who goes bankrupt. This is a model that comes directly from clandestine or criminal organizations, either by charging a fee to operate in their territory. In this case, the wall garden is a territory or by funding, in some cases, developers, but they take the risk the way we said it. So so that model is it's clearly a mafia-based model. And uh, I, I am surprised that it took this long for governments on the planet to start to calling them. And, and re recently uh, in the U.S. Congress, I don't know if you saw it, so the four big CEOs of four tech companies went there. And for the first time, Tim Cook, specifically from Apple, was called on this particular issue. So this is the kind of behaviors that we were used to seeing. criminal, But it is a very successful one. So I don't blame Apple for doing it. It is It, it makes sense. You bring a lot of innovation. A lot of people are legitimately legitimately doing very well thanks to the fact that Apple made the very heavy capital investment to build the platform. But that's a good example. Now, the extreme of this is actually not on the App Store. It's Cydia. Cydia is, as many of your listeners know, the uh, one of the alternative app stores that exist if you jailbreak your phone, if you break from the chains of Apple. And the interesting thing about CDA is that you get to see a lot of apps there that haven't been approved by the app store of Apple, but some of them become so successful that then Apple integrates them into iOS, right? So paradoxically, that semi-criminal or, or semi-illegal operation that is 
jailbreaking, it's actually legal according to now US law at least, but jailbreaking your phone and then doing things that Apple doesn't want you to do, that in itself becomes a signals indicator for Apple to decide what people want later. And this is something that we see time and time again with legitimate companies using actually illegitimate markets in order to inform their business decisions. I remember reading that in Estonia, HBO Plus was not available and Game of Thrones was a heavily downloaded, uh, downloaded, torrented show, right? So uh, instead of fighting it, what HBO ended up doing was opening a ton of memorabilia shops where you could go and buy toys from Game of Thrones. And of course, whenever HBO finally launched their international operation, they made sure that Estonia would be one of the core markets that they would use. So this this kind of weird relation between legal and illegal, it's one that we see all the time. And we do have many examples of companies in the legitimate or semi-legitimate world actually taking from behaviors from drug cartels like the example of Apple. Yeah, I think City is a, actually a perfect example. I personally have my phone jailbroken. Yep. And I've done that since my first iPhone, actually. And I've seen the whole discussion in the, in the community that to a lot of people, they're like, ah, it's not worth it anymore because Apple's integrating a lot of those features. Yep. And I just found it fascinating that, you know, Apple's uh, being inspired by this semi-legal, at least it's uh, illegal in, in Germany. So you can do whatever you want with your device since you've bought it. Yeah. And if you think about it, so for example, uh, many companies, both in Germany and America, are looking to become the first ones to deliver products via drone, for example, using drones to deliver your Amazon purchase or your pizza that you bought at Domino's. They won't be the first company to do it. The Tijuana cartel has been delivering drugs via, via drone now for years. In fact, since 2007, we have identified the use of drones in the U.S.-Mexico border, either for surveillance or for delivery of small quantities of drugs. I mean, if you think about it, cocaine is the perfect drug to deliver via drone. It's, it's, it's small, uh, but still highly valuable. So the lessons that they have taught should be captured and understood for anybody, for DHL or FedEx or anybody trying to deliver products, not because they are going to be delivering criminal payloads, but because they have years of experience without the friction of the regulation, right? So this is where criminal innovation is valuable. It's not so much in the value proposition itself, is that it answers the question, what would this market look like if it were not limited by regulation? So you're saying that Amazon wasn't the first company to deliver its products with drones? <laughs> That's correct. So at this point, if you consider what, uh, uh, criminal uh, cartels companies, they were the first ones. They've been doing it now for many, many years. So do you, do you think Jeff Bezos has copied that from the cartels? I let, let me put it this way. I haven't spoken with their team, but if I were working for Amazon's drone delivery teams, I would certainly be paying attention to the experiences, to what's known. There are already court cases. How were they found? Where did the drones have accidents? What kind of payloads they were using? Do, do people, uh, because I, all this is in the court cases, do people identify the noise, right? So noise levels are going to be a big deal once you start delivering. How did cartels deal with that, right? All of these questions that right now, are only experimental in nature in the laboratories of legitimate companies have already real-life deployments 
in the case of drug trafficking organizations, right? So there are fantastic social experiments on technology diffusion that you couldn't perform yourself right now because it would be illegal to do so. So they can because they don't care about the law. And therefore, that's that's the biggest value, the highest value that we have is that they get there before in ways that we couldn't because they do it outside of the law. Absolutely. So if we kind of dig deeper on some of these innovations, so during Pablo Escobar's ruling, he used planes uh, and then more and more of these planes got discovered and captured. Then he, his cartel uh, resorted to dropping the product from the planes. And then I believe also he pioneered building tunnels to ship his product. And then I think the cartels moved to fast boats that brought with it a lot of issues. So 50% of these boats sank, uh, and then came these narco subs. I believe it was first discovered in like 1993. And so these drug cartels have been using these, I kind of call them submarines, but they're actually like sub semi-submersibles. That's correct, yeah. That use carbon fiber to ship their drugs to the, to the destinations. Can you kind of also explain what these narco subs really look like? So there you have a multiple ones. So you, the, the one that you're thinking about is what, what we call a semi-submersible. These are little boats basically that have a very low flotation line. So from the distance, you would not see them. They float almost at the level of, of a sea level. They only have a few uh, a few elements of the of the hull outside of the water. Uh, the problem with them is that when from from the air they're really easy to spot, right? So you 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 see them uh, as a as a as a boat. They're fairly evident, and and the Coast Guard and the navies of the country of different countries have now a fairly robust uh, mechanisms built in place to identify. Them. No, I mean the the most ambitious of their maritime operations are uh, fully submersibles, either by being tethered to other boats. So you would see a fishing boat and it looks perfectly normal, but under the water, it would be dragging a semi-submersible full of, with a ton of cocaine or two tons of cocaine. And uh, you actually, we actually have identified the use of fully submersibles made out of Kevlar, so they would be difficult to detect. Uh, we found a few of them in shipyards in South America. We have never found one in open sea, which means either that they didn't use them or that they've been very successful using them. Right? This is one of the problems that we have with counter-narcotics operation is that you, you only know where cartels are failing. You don't know where they are succeeding. So uh, amongst the many different chains in the supply uh, chain management elements that they have, certainly the maritime one is one of the most the dystopian out of a Mad Max movie, but you'll encounter this level of ingenuity almost at every level in the supply chain. Yeah, I've also uh, seen that they have in these semi-submersibles that they have a lever inside. As soon as they're being boarded, they can flood their vessel when uh, the authorities or the U.S. Coast Guard are trying to board, essentially uh, sinking it. So if they're in front of a judge, they can say, well, I didn't have any drugs, prove it. And that goes to the to the understanding of the system. Uh, the U.S. changed its law, so it, it criminalized the simple possession of a semi-submersible precisely to adapt to what you described, right? It used to be that they would get rid of the drugs and therefore there would be nothing to prosecute them against with. Now, now the mere fact of, of, of being on international waters in an unregistered semi-submersible would be considered uh, illegal in itself. So, but you're right. It, it's, it's part of what they used to do uh, to avoid, to avoid persecution. Per, persecu persecu oh, I didn't know that. What, what was the cost of one of these narco subs? Uh, we all know that, you know, drugs are highly profitable, but we all think of, you know, these big submarines, U-boats, things like that, that it's really expensive. What does something like that cost 
to, to build? Yeah, it's hard to determine, right? Because we're dealing with very uh, difficult ways of coming up with, with a specific price tag, but we, we, we often put their value or the cost of manufacturing of one of these semi-submersibles in around a million bucks, a million dollars. And they might transport 80, 90, a hundred million dollars of drug uh, of drugs in, in, in one of them. So, so they normally do a single successful run. They don't retrieve them. So they'll sink them once they reach the uh, coast of Mexico or even the United States. And a single submarine, it's worth in merchandise a hundred, 150 times its cost. So you can see that the relationship between investment and reward is really high. It reminds me of the in investing, they call it asymmetric risk and reward. Yep. So you would find, say, some type of investment or investment vehicle where you can lose five, six, or maybe even 10 times. And that's the point where you break even. So I find that fascinating that it's just cheaper for them to, to sink it or say, oh, you know what, they cut like 10 of them. Makes no difference. We shipped like 500 million of, of product across the border. So that's fair enough. So we, we know, and this is publicly available data, so I'm not disclosing anything. We know that the United States government has a big amount of confirmed detected illegal entries into maritime space controlled by them that they cannot respond to because of lack of assets, right? We, we're talking about 40 to 60% of confirmed illegal crossings that the U.S. just doesn't have enough vessels in the water to go and chase them. Those are the confirmed detected ones, right? Now add all the ones we know nothing about that we just don't know. And we don't know what that number is. It might be twice as much. It might be half as much. It might be three times as much. We don't know it. Right. So you're talking that at least from those that we know, 50% of them, we will not respond to them of those that we detect. Uh, and I just told you that a single submersible is a million bucks, but it, it transports a hundred. So I can basically send 99 of them, lose 50 of them and still have a very healthy profit margin uh, coming out of my operation. And this is kind of the world we're living in when you see the kind of profit margins that drug cartel operations create. Yeah, you'd be stupid not to do it. I mean, just from, from the, the metrics. Yeah, that's exactly it. The singles, uh, and you were mentioning tunnels, right? We just found one of the most sophisticated ones between the US and Mexico border. A single tunnel might cost to produce, to, to build two, three million dollars, a million dollars around that number. And it might take you a few months to a few weeks, depending on how efficient and how deep and et cetera. The first day that you finish building it, you might cross half a billion dollars in methamphetamine or cocaine or whatever. So if that tunnel would be found that day after the first shipment is successful, it already paid itself 100x. Now, chances are is that actually that tunnel is going to be continuing operations for months or even years, right? But even if that tunnel's success rate would be 12 hours after completion, that in itself would make it one of the best investments just for a pure a capital investment point that you could make anywhere on the planet. I think you can say that it is a cat and mouse game, but they're just more mice. Yeah, and mice are more creative in many ways. If you, This is the other part of the equation, right? So governmental innovation is slow, it's limited by regulation, it's re limited by your liberal society, right? We, we were seeing this debate right now in America, right? How far are you willing to let your police forces go? in order to punish a certain crime. Well, there's a cost in the freedom uh, in a society. So countries like the United States has, have made a trade-off and they have decided that in general, they, they prefer, for example, a guilty man on the street 
that an innocent man in prison, that doesn't mean that there are no innocent men in prison, but in general, the, the system is built so it's hard to put somebody in prison. Chinese society, for example, has done the opposite. And in many ways, they are more comfortable knowing that everybody goes to prison, even a few innocents. Well, those trade-offs cost innovation in government, right? So, and part of that consequence is that where you have nimble, flexible mice, as you're saying, and you have lots of them and very diverse and well-funded, you have a few fat cats that are strong, that are capable, that are well-trained, but there are few and they're very visible and you know when they're moving, they're noisy. So you also mentioned another very innovative transport method that the cartel is using, which they nicknamed the Neptune Project, where they would have a holdout torpedo in which they would obviously transport drugs. And this then is towed by a ship and the torpedo floats about 30 meters under the water. And they also have a relay system where one boat could release the torpedo drag cable and it would be picked up by another boat in the vicinity. And it would also have the ability to to float to the top, signal its encrypted location to the cartel, and the torpedo would just look like simple driftwood or a simple wood log swimming in the ocean. And what I found particularly fascinating is the fact that all these communication devices that are built into the torpedo can be bought off the shelf. And I believe their success rate was something around 90%. That's correct. And all these designs are have been fairly old now and not to think what we have now. So what are some of the trends or some of the devices we're, we're seeing now? Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, so I, I mentioned this one, right? So in, 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 in the innovation literature, we often talk about success bias, right? So so your your listeners might be familiar with that. It's that whenever we come up with generalizable lessons from successful business strategies, we do it from companies that are still around, right? TWA is not putting out quarterly reports anymore. Kodak is not anymore a successful company and therefore we don't. But so when we build our case studies for business schools, for example, we do it and we generalize successes. But we don't know of the many failed companies that also tried the same thing and failed and they're not around anymore. In Drug trafficking literature, we actually have the opposite. We have failure bias. For me to be able to talk to you about a current mechanism of smuggling that is successful, it means we already know about it. It means that we might have already captured one or two of them, and therefore we already know more about it. So the most interesting, I often say when I teach this to, to, to law enforcement agents, for example, the most interesting drug trafficking organization operations are the ones I cannot talk about here because I don't know nothing about them and nobody does, right? And we have lots of them. We we know, for example, that drug trafficking organizations were using semi-submersibles for more than eight years before the first one was captured, right? So that's that's the delay into the almost a decade of delay between them launching a successful new technology and us finally detecting it successfully and interdicting one. So we know that they've been very interested in automation systems. Uh, so uh, be that drones, but other mechanisms too. Some of these tunnels that I described now have a little, I don't want to call them drones, but little automated carts like the ones you would see in mines. So so you don't have to uh, have a human being going back and forth the tunnel and therefore there's nobody to arrest. Uh, we know that they've been exploring submersibles that would be without a crew. If you do that, you actually simplify a lot the building of the submersible because then all the life support systems don't have to be there. And, and the idea being that suddenly one day you would 
send three or four of these automated drones full of cocaine and maybe two of them make it and who cares, right? There's nobody there to be arrested and there's no risk. There, there's no human capital risk. Um, we, I already mentioned the drones, right? With increasing payload uh, for some of the unmanned vehicles, they've been using some of them. They, 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 they've been adapting a lot of the ones that are used by the movie industry that uh, use very heavy cameras. So therefore they can carry uh, bigger payloads. Uh, they tend to have either hybrid engines or, or, or gasoline engines instead of being electric and therefore can go farther. And to, to an example, coming back to the whole city, uh, and, and so right now in America, all drones have to legally fly only by line of sight. That means that you have to be able to see the drone as you're flying. Well, if you're a drug cartel, you don't care about that. So all of the drones that have been captured from drug cartels have been the equivalent of jailbroken, and they are running software that allows them to fly uh, without line of sight, which means you can program it from whoever, wherever in the Mexican territory, and they can land pretty far into the uh, U.S. territory, and uh, there's nobody to capture one side or the other. Right? So so it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, we've seen the sophistication of tunnels, so more and more of them. And if you think about it, the interesting thing about innovation in drug smuggling, specifically at the U.S.-Mexico border, is that where, where there is a wall, you have a very clear series of vectors. You can either go above it, under it, around it, or through it. Right, that's it. There's no other way of doing it. And all ca- all the catalogs of criminal operations are based on one of those behaviors. And frankly, they are constantly innovating in all of them. And we see innovation in going around it, and that would be the maritime route. Uh, above it, that would be drones and other ways of smuggling on top of uh, the, the fence. Under it, that would be tunnels. And then through it, which is actually one of the most successful way of doing it, is by smuggling in the middle of legitimate trade that occurs every day between the United States and Mexico or uh, associating it to human smuggling in between points of entry. So all of that is the catalog of behaviors that these venture capitalist firms of criminal behaviors fund. And in all of them, we see new trends successfully being implemented, right? Drones, submersibles, tunnels, or new ways of smuggling uh, through through points of entry by concealing it in legitimate uh, in legitimate products. Amazing. They do a lot of product innovation as well. So recently, or in the last few few years, smoking has become unsexy. So a lot of people do vaping, and I guess we're seeing a lot of the screwed cannabis oil that is used for vaping. So they seem to be adapting to market demands as well. They seem to be in touch, which is in demand. Yep, and interestingly enough, in in that regard, for example, one thing that is really funny is that we're seeing reverse smuggling. So because the marijuana market has grown in Mexico and now California or Colorado marijuana is considered to be of higher quality than the Mexican one, you actually see now kind of organic marijuana smuggled from the United States to Mexico illegally uh, to supply that market. So not only they're innovating in the different kinds of delivery mechanisms like vaping, as you were saying, but they're also creating markets. And if now Mexicans want the California stuff, well, they'll supply it to them. That's uh, quite ironic. It is. I've also seen that the cartels also have like a, a PR department, if you will. Uh, they've been using the coronavirus to distribute food to people labeled with El Chapo in order to gain support. Mm-hmm. So essentially what we're seeing is the their PR department at work. That's completely right. So historically, they've always had a, a way of relating to local po- uh, local populations. How effective they are, it's it's 
it can be dis- discussed. But they certainly are in this case not only not only distributing distributing food or supplies. They actually have been building medical uh, infrastructure to take care of people, especially in those areas in the rural parts of Mexico where the Mexican government has failed to provide to provide effective care. Now I don't have any any data on the quality of care that was provided. But it is highly paradoxical that these companies that sell these pharmacological products that are very hazardous to the health of millions of people are actually now in the business of providing healthcare uh, to some of these populations. But it is, as you mentioned, it is a part of a very well-crafted effort to win, to use a term that was popular a few years ago, the hearts and minds of local population. This is, I think, also an argument that I tell people, especially in, say, Europe, where they have socialized medicine. And I'm saying, mm-hmm. well, if you do it correctly, private institutions or private companies provide better service in most cases than governments can. Now, there's a few exceptions, but uh, you can, you see here, for instance, that you know Mexico doesn't provide the medical services that country needs. And here, a private organization organization, even though it's it's criminal, provide better services. So you can have a society where you have private medical companies that provide better services. So just because the government does not do it doesn't mean uh, we, we won't have this service. And a lot of people point to the U.S. Now, that's not a fair comparison because it's not really a free market. You had like Obama, and I don't want to get political, but um, he provided a lot of money to the pharmaceutical industry. So you don't really have this competition that you really need to provide maybe better service than if you kind of socialize it. So I find that fascinating. I Yeah, this this is a longer conversation to have, and, and, and uh, we probably could have it another time, but you're right. So so in many ways, a lot of our discussions regarding government versus private sector are, they remind me of how probably alchemists used to discuss about alchemy before chemistry became a thing. So most of our ideas on how to manage an economy come from the 19th century, from a time in which we still had very little understanding, uh, very small understanding of innovation theory or of coordination and human behavior, right? So both Karl, uh, Karl Marx and Adam Smith, for example, they published their work way before big data and our understanding of social uh, social behavior. So you're completely right. In this case, what you're trying to do is to come up with what is the best kind of, the best way of coordinating humans so we can build the system that is fair, but also innovative. And in the case of drug cartels, what you have is a fairly deregulated space. So it's almost libertarian paradise in which if they want to build a hospital, well, they'll build a hospital. Is that hospital up to code? No, probably not. Do they follow medical protocol and FDA approved? No, probably not. And uh, it might work or it might not. Now, would you subject your son or your wife to something like that? Well, probably not. But if you have no choice and that's what it's available, uh, it does become a successful deployment of an asset that wouldn't have been there had regulation had to be followed. So the paradox here is that you enter one of these pick your poison kind of equations. And I agree with you that what cartels in this case demonstrate is that regulation does take a a toll in our innovation capacity. Now, that might be a good thing, and we might want to slow down innovation in the name of safety, for example. And and Europe has made more of a point of that by uh, following what we call the precautionary principle as part of EU regulation. But there is a cost, and drug cartels become a great uh, poster child case 
to look at what wood regulation is doing and maybe we can get our the best of both worlds, but learning what works with them, but at the same time, preserving what is effective in our regulatory environments. I always kind of try to sum up this, this discussions I have with, with friends and, and, and family is all you have to decide is, is one single question. That's what role should government play in your life? Should it be the nanny state take care of you from cradle to grave? Or do you want, say, the maximum amount of freedom, but you have a lot of responsibility? You know, you have a, a dictatorship, you have socialism, communism. That's very neutral. It's not bad or good. You just have to decide in what's, what trade-offs are you willing to make, as you say. And I personally, I want the maximum amount of freedom. I'll make a few trade-offs, but I think that can be kind of summed up by making or answering that question for oneself. Uh, they're behind in a lot of things. I mean, ease of doing business, place 26. The internet, a lot of expats here complain that it's so bad. We have a lot of social structure that will protect us from great uh, medical bills, but at what cost? I always ask the people, look at what you're paying in taxes. Germany's, if you're, if you're single, you pay the second highest taxes in the world after Belgium. So the, they tend to forget, uh, what, what am I paying? Mm -hmm. What is the trade-off I am getting for the service that is being provided? And, and I think that's the ultimate question, right? So ultimately what you're discussing and what we've been discussing here is how do people coordinate in this case, for example, an interdiction against drugs doesn't mean that people will not consume drugs. It means that you will be creating a black market for drugs. Now that might be the right thing because it's easier to manage and because you are okay with the consequences of that, but you're trading one social organizational system, which would be a legitimate market versus another social organization system like a black market or illegal trade. As long as people understand carefully the trade-offs that they're entering into, I think it's fair. My fear is that in many environments, people just don't understand necessarily or haven't taken the time to see what are you losing at the same time that you're getting something instead. And that's that, that an informed voter should be somebody who says, okay, I, I understand perfectly well what I'm losing out of this. And I'm still okay with it. And then it's okay. To sum up this discussion, what are your top three most valuable skills companies can or should learn from drug cartels and how to innovate? Now, I know you mentioned some of them, but maybe you can uh, give us your top three. Yeah, we, we mentioned two of them already. I would say that the first one is, of course, to uh, clearly make sure that organizational incentives and uh, the uh, personal incentives are well aligned. This is something that we see in, in criminal organizations very clearly, right? If you don't work hard for the company, you'll end up in prison or death. That's a really strong, powerful individual incentive. So many companies, especially big companies, reward behaviors within the organization that actually are detrimental to the organization. I'm thinking about office politics or uh, kissing my behind, right? Or very aggressive anti-innovation practices where my best course of action is actually not to do anything, right? Because if I try to do something and things go well, don't go well, I'll be punished, right? So for by, by all means, if your organization is punishing those who try something new in a really bad way, you are hurting yourself. Cartels don't do that. They actually work really hard 
to innovate all the time. The second part, which kind of piggybacks into this one, is that drug trafficking organizations, paradoxically, we don't think of cartels as risk averse. We don't think of drug lords as risk averse, but that's what they are. In their mind, they're always thinking about how can I continue this operation by minimizing risk? So it's almost like saying, okay, I'm going to jump out of a plane, but I'm going to make sure that I have a parachute, right? So what are the ways in which your company is systematically thinking about decreasing long-term risk, even if that means to take a profit loss or less of a profit uh, at the short term. Now, this is not new. We, we, we talk about organizational resiliency. It's just that cartels practice it better than almost anybody. So certain companies, I'm thinking of Amazon, right, that historically had a very low profit margin to keep the company growing. If you think about how can I make sure that this business unit is successful, not now, not tomorrow, but 50 or 100 years into the future, your decision-making process looks very differently than if you're thinking about the next quarterly report or how can I get a quick exit out of this startup. So DTOs, drug trafficking organizations, tend to think in very long-term horizons in that regard. But at the same time, they innovate very rapidly in the short term. So this pairing between long-term survivability of the central structure, but quick change in the business models, and as you were saying, the pioneering of new products and, and, and methods, I think it's a great formula in any case that the cartel didn't invent, but they, they apply very successfully and other companies could learn uh, to do in a better way. You mentioned three excellent points, and I think one of which can't be overstated or can't be mentioned enough, which is the incentive structure have to be aligned or the employees of a certain company have to have skin in the game. So compensation drives behavior, as the old saying goes. Mm -hmm. But if a company wants more innovation, wants the employees to be more innovative, but continues to compensate them based on their silos, on their departments, then why should I, as an employee, if I have a conflict in priorities, focus on this new innovation stuff here on the side if I'm not getting paid or compensated for it? Yep. Or if companies want cross-functional teams, but they continue to pay the employees based on their silo, well, you aren't going to get cross-functional teams on the surface, maybe, but real cross-functional teamwork, you ain't going to get it that way. Yes. And to be really fair, and this is where things get hard, um, the way cartels do it is by having what we call a red team, right? So it's not it's not only you inside of your organization, you're systematically being attacked from the outside. Red teaming, it's a great way of uh, doing this. I recommend it very frequently to companies that are starting to get too comfortable in their position and finding ways in which external actors can put pressure on you. Normally, it's better when those external actors are either consultants or teams that you build within your own organization. So you control them and they don't destroy you. But yeah, so cartels are permanently subject to this external pressure. And therefore, even if a manager doesn't want to change, if uh, the cops knock at your door or you hear that your colleague, colleague was shot and killed uh, two days ago, uh, that, that changes that dynamic. Yeah, and I believe Amazon even has a principle where the services that they provide inside the company, at some point, they'll externalize these services to have, in a sense, signals directly from the market. And these services have to be profitable so that, again, in turn, forces these new services that have been externalized to innovate. Yeah, you build competition, right? In this case, it doesn't have to be a lethal one, but certainly 
making sure that there is a mechanism so those who want to do something new can point at a competitive environment instead of a vertical one and say, hey, if we don't do this, somebody else might do it instead of us. So some of the last questions I want to ask you, and I've been wondering the whole time, have you had death threats from the drug cartels or are you worried that they might come after you for essentially spilling the beans on their trade secrets? No, never. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I work at a very high level. I do have family in Mexico, so I'm careful about that. I don't. So, so that that danger happens mostly to journalists uh, who are really literally identifying uh, identifying their networks locally, or of course, law enforcement agents. So, I am thankfully uh, away enough from that environment that that has that that hasn't happened. Have they tried to recruit you uh, as a head of innovation or something like that? No, I mean, not at all. There are, when you grow in Mexico, it, it becomes weird to identify who's doing what where. So Mexicans kind of grow more cynical about money that cannot be explained. So for example, as a lawyer, this is years ago, I would be very careful to never enter a business operation with somebody whose lifestyle didn't match what I knew was the profitability of the legitimate industry. So I, I kind of probably made a reputation early on of of uh, somebody who, who would stay out of it. But it, it is true that in places where there is a lot of drug money and Mexico being one of those, at one point for some people who want to start a venture, it becomes really hard actually not to touch cartel money, which is yet another problem we didn't talk about. But this pollution of legitimate businesses, it's a real problem because then when you want to subtract the legitimate industry or the legitimate economy from the drug economy, they're so intertwined that it becomes really hard to do so. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. So is there something I didn't touch on or forgot to ask you that I should have mentioned? No, I think it was fantastic. It was a, a really nice conversation, David. I would say that one of the challenges we have, and you mentioned Project Neptune, the submarine that would go all completely under the water. Project Neptune is one of the few cases where we actually have a criminal entrepreneur giving a testimony of what happened inside of a drug cartel operation. Most of the time, we learn only by, by, by their actions, but we rarely have somebody talking about it. And in that case, doctor from Mexico, medical doctor from Mexico, went into the witness protection program. And for reasons I still don't understand, but I'm very thankful of, uh, he was allowed to give a bunch of interviews. There's a very nice Vice uh, YouTube video. I wrote an article about it. And he talks about about the process to create this new technology. And the funny thing is that the, when he's talking about, you could forget that you're watching a drug trafficking innovator and instead that you're watching an episode of Shark Tank, right? Because the, the language that he uses, the terms that he uses, the concept, the, 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 the story arc is exactly the same when anybody who had a great idea and wanted to bring it to market. The only difference is that this great idea was about how to smuggle drugs into the United States. Fascinating. If there are some listeners out there that are like, I want more of these insights from Rodrigo and the drug cartels, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? How do you want them to contact you? If the, I, I assume they'll have the name from the podcast. They can just Google my name. I'm, I'm re really easy to find. Uh, Google Scholar would have some most of my publications, not all of them, but most of them. And uh, they'll find me on LinkedIn. They'll find me. They have a website, www.rodrigonietogomez.com. 
Uh, but I'm really Googleable, so so uh, at any point, just just look at me in, for me in any search engine, and I'm always happy to to engage in a conversation. Okay, perfect. I'll be sure to post all those links uh, in the show notes as well if anyone's interested. It was an awesome interview. I could have gone on for for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. So thanks again for coming on the podcast and enlightening our our listeners about the innovation potential that drug cartels have. Thank you so much. I really ha- it was a blast. So hopefully we can repeat it soon. Wow, what a fascinating and interesting interview. If you want a part two at some point, let me know by dropping me an email, filling out the feedback form, and we might do a part two where we explore some of the other topics we didn't have time to cover. So this is the part where I reflect upon the interview and where I add some of my own thoughts. I'll also explain, as I promised at the beginning, the stages that cocaine goes through in detail how it's produced, and what it really takes to build your own drug empire and to become a truly great drug lord. To understand why cocaine is so profitable, we first need to understand how it's produced. Cocaine's main ingredient is, of course, the coca plant. It's a great cash crop for tea, but also medicinal purposes, but in this form it would be pretty useless to us as a drug cartel because it just doesn't yet provide us with a profitable drug. The cocaine content is just too low. What we need in order to produce one kilogram of cocaine so we can sell it to our end customers are lots of dried coca leaves. And when I say lots, I mean a shit ton which roughly translates to about 350 kilograms. This costs us around $385 in raw materials. Then we have to dry our leaves, which reduces our weight, to something like 300 kilograms. But now comes the real fun part, extracting all that delicious cocaine out of our leaves. And we achieve this by finally chopping up our dried leaves and mixing them with some healthy chemicals like cement, fertilizer, gasoline, and then we filter out the remaining plant matter and do our best to remove all those chemicals. But to be honest, it's not that important. Next, we boil the remainder down at a low temperature and are left with around 1 kilogram slightly moist paste, also known as cocaine base, And if it's a white-colored paste, you've done a really good job. All we got to do now for the last step is to mix our cocaine base with some kind of solvent, such as acetone, with hydrochloric acid, filter it, dry it, and then we're left with one kilogram of beautiful cocaine powder. Now we can finally cash in on our hard work by selling our high-quality product for about $800 in South America. But wait, it doesn't stop there. By the time we export our lovely product out of, say, Colombia to our drug traffickers, I mean distributors, it's worth around $2,200. Then it's time for our distributors to work their magic by loading it on a plane, sneaking it across the border, smuggling it through tunnels, or use one of those narco subs that Rodrigo mentioned in the interview. Basically, our distributors do whatever it takes to get our product imported into our markets like the US or Europe. Once our product has reached its destination, the value of our kilogram jumps to about $14,000. Not bad, eh? But just because we've got our product into the designated target market doesn't mean we're done yet, because we still need to get our awesome product into the hands of our loyal customers. Keep in mind, at each stage, our handlers will usually cut the cocaine with other substances to make the product go further, which is also known as stretching the product, 
We then move on to the next stage in our supply chain, which are our mid-tier dealers who generally jack up the price to around $19,500. And finally, our mid-tier dealers then distribute it to their street-level dealers who then sell it to our happy customers. By stretching our product and starting out with a meager $385 of dried boring coca leaves from our headquarters in South America, we've turned our product into $122,000 of pure unadulterated cocaine. And if you're still confused how we turn these simple leaves into such a highly profitable product, let me explain. Let me explain the magical economics, which we'll call narconomics, of our little drug cartel. So our drug cartel is a lot like Walmart, which is a little bit of a monopoly, but with subtle differences. And yes, sure, Walmart does have plenty of competitors, but since they're the biggest and control so much of the customer base, they're able to dictate how much they're willing to pay suppliers for their product because they're essentially the biggest buyer. Or, in other words, instead of Walmart being a monopoly, it's a monopsony. Whereas the monopoly is when there's a single seller in a market, only when one company, say, selling a product X, for example, a monopsony is when there's just a single buyer in a given market to where instead of the customer getting squeezed, it's the suppliers. So let's see if the juice really is worth the squeeze. You see, our drug cartel has the exact same advantage as Walmart. Most cartels don't grow their own drugs. We purchase our drugs from ordinary poor farmers that are just trying to make a living. Our cartel then packages it all nice and pretty and handles all the distribution to our end customers, just like Walmart. And since our drug cartel controls a piece of their territory, which could be a city, a region, or even an entire country, the farmers can't really, well shop around to see which drug cartel will pay them the best price for their coca leaves. Our cartel owns the territory and we are the only buyer. This means that if the farmers have a bad harvest, a bad year, the local government that may be funded by the U.S. war on drugs, say, cracks down and destroys half of their farm or anything else that makes their costs go up for the farmers, it doesn't really make a difference to us as a drug cartel. Since we control the price, we're also able to keep their costs down even when the farmers' costs go up and the farmers will always have to suck it up and take what we offer them. Cool, huh? So as you already know, most retailers sell their products with a 10 to 100% markup from the wholesale price. Our drug business, however, is a little bit more lucrative, to say the least. Instead of the laughable 10 to 100% markup, we mark up our lovely product from $385 for our raw coca leaves to around $122,000 street price for one kilogram of pure cocaine, which is a decent 30,000% markup. Now, I know what you're saying, but David, that's not all profit, because all that smuggling of tons of illegal drugs with all that murdering, bribing, and safeguarding for all of our merchandise that we typically have to do, that does get pretty pricey. But even after all those necessary expensive, it's still profitable as hell. And remember, the government, even though there are enemies and can be a royal pain in the ass sometimes, they've created this beautiful market for us by classifying cocaine as an illegal substance and automatically making this product highly profitable so we can sell it in the black market. Thank you, Uncle Sam. Greatly appreciated. 
Now, I can also hear these naysayers out there saying that drugs are addictive, to which I want to respond by saying, ever since we humans started selling products to each other, we've devised better and better ways to make our products more addictive because, hey, the more addictive a product is, the more it sells itself. We just need to look at how good social media platforms have gotten at this. But with our drugs, we don't have to worry about all that nonsense because drugs are as addictive as it gets. So, obviously, starting a drug cartel is the only logical choice moving forward. I'm sure you're aware of that and I don't have to tell you that. So, what would the process exactly look like if you wanted to get started and set up your own drug cartel? All right. In some ways, the drug trade is the ultimate form of entrepreneurship and don't let anyone else tell you different. The only real drawback of our drug industry is that it's illegal. Instead of traditional markets where any schmuck can set up shop, our drug trade is more of a network market where a big part of your success will depend on the connections that you have. Here are some of the skills that you'll need in order to succeed. For one, you need to be a people person. The first question you have to ask yourself is, how good are you at making new friends? How good are you at earning the trust of, say, criminal strangers? Remember, there's no rule of law here. You just can't take someone to court or call the police if you've been wronged. So it comes down to how good are you at managing relationships, resolving conflicts, or are you able to manage people in such a way where conflicts can be avoided? And if someone does purposely cross, cross you or stab you in the back, how willing are you to use violence? And even though violence is generally bad for business, it should only be used as a last resort as it attracts attention you don't really want. The more ambitious you are when you need to be, the higher your chances are that you'll succeed in this industry. Second skill you need to have, you need to be a creative mind. With all that money involved, drug cartels have tried nearly every idea under the sun. So what innovations can you bring to the table to outwit the authorities to make more money? The most successful drug lord didn't rise to power from just doing what other drug lord did. No, he not only came up with the idea to combine all the major cartels in Mexico into one federation, but he actually was able to pull it off and get them to cooperate with each other. With El Chapo, it was the same story. When everyone else was smuggling and bringing in drugs across the border, it was him that came up with the innovative idea to use tunnels to transport his drugs under the border. This in turn made him the most powerful drug lord in the world. So, if you're able to strike a balance between the most innovative entrepreneur while at the same time being the most cunning cutthroat mob boss, then it's time to step up your game. Which brings me to number three. You need to be able to recruit talent. As in any other business, an organization's people are its most valuable asset. And in the drug business, it's even more so. If you want to build a drug empire, then you're going to need employees, but not just any employees. Employees that are loyal and talented. They need the right criminal background and shouldn't be stupid. Want to find suppliers or farmers? You'll need to find and make business connections with the right people. Want someone to oversee your operations? You need to have and find the right person. And you need to recruit these people in secrecy without job postings while making sure they're not an undercover cop or an informant or someone that's going to stab you in the back later on. Like I mentioned earlier, once you find these people, you need to be a master at managing and dealing people with problems without resorting to violence. Well, at least not right away. 
and combine this with the high profit margin of the business, you'll quickly realize that human resources is one of your biggest bottlenecks. Any HR person will tell you the same. And while the best drug cartels are usually the ones who are best at managing its people, there are a few ways to tackle this problem. So how do we go about solving this challenge? A great place to recruit potential employees are prisons. Now, that might sound very counterintuitive, but prisons are similar to colleges without the high tuition fees. Essentially, it's a bunch of people with nothing better to do, and all of them have criminal backgrounds, which is perfect for us, and all of them don't have any jobs lined up after their release. In case you're in a more police-prone country like the US or the UK, another great option is to use independent contractors. You can hire a bunch of freelancers and have each of them do small, simple jobs that are really hard to screw up, similar to cogs in a machine, if you will. One freelancer could be the courier, one would pick up the product, then distribute it to dealers, one would collect the money, and, and so on. So you get the idea. And since you've compartmentalized your business and everyone is on a need-to-know basis, you expose yourself to less risk. And we also call this risk mitigation in our industry. And in fact, a mini British cartel ran with just two people that had the exact same system that was running and bringing in around a healthy 60 million British pounds per year. Very lean if you ask me. If you have all these skills and talents and you're able to strike the perfect balance between entrepreneur, man manager, and a violent boss not to be fucked with, you find the right suppliers, employees, and your business is doing really good, well, then it's time to scale, baby. All right, so how do we scale our business? Well, the way we scale is much like any other legitimate business. El Chapo, for example, was notoriously always ahead of the authorities and evading capture. A big part of his success was that locals loved him, or at least they thought that they'd be worse off without him, so locals always helped him escape the police. What was his secret, you ask? He created good PR. El Chapo and other drug lords are very good at PR or public relations. For example, they would leave $1,000 tips, build churches, give out gifts to kids, build housing in poor neighborhoods, and even provide cheap loans to business. So if you're a drug empire that is getting really big and attracting a lot of unwanted attention, it might be worth investing in good PR. In our globalized economy, companies always have the choice to shop around for which country will save them the most money. And our drug cartel is no different. Countries like Guatemala or Honduras have much lower average income per capita. This in turn means then that we can pay lower salaries to our workers. And the more corrupt politicians are, the easier it will be to bribe them so they can turn a blind eye. And once your organization gets to a certain scale, offshoring might be a viable option you should actually consider. Another way to scale your business is diversification. Drugs go out of style like LSD did in the past, or laws change so that cannabis becomes legal in some areas, making our cocaine product unprofitable pretty quickly. So relying on just one drug or product to sell is very risky. You already have experience and the track record with one drug, so it's not too hard to diversify into other drugs. A great example of this would be heroin coming back into fashion. And the reason for this is that patients were getting addicted to oxycodone, but once they couldn't afford it, they fell back onto something cheaper like heroin. And this, by the way, is called vertical diversification. 
And another great way to diversify your product portfolio is to horizontally diversify into other crimes such as racketeering, gun running, human trafficking, of which the last one is very profitable and provides a huge, huge addressable market for years to come. If you already have the infrastructure, it's basically just a matter of repurposing it to fit other operations. And if you've gotten this far, then it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy all that tax-free drug money. But remember the drug lord's most important rule. Never, ever get high off your own product. (sighs) But all jokes aside, if you think you have the entrepreneurial skills and ambition to become the next drug lord, why not do something legal? You already have all the business and social skills needed to succeed in a legitimate business. But, you know, the only downside with a legitimate business, though, is that there's also a guy at the top called the IRS, but he goes by other nicknames as well in other countries, and he can be a real bully and a pain in the ass and uses force with his enforcement agents, if need be, and steals half of your profits and calls it taxation, whatever that means, and promises some form of protection. But in reality, it's just a fancy name for theft at gunpoint. All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you don't hear back from me in the next three to four weeks, please send help. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes.